0: Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 16 begin in verse 1 here in just a moment, Mark 16. If you're visiting Christ church this morning, we're really glad you're here. Elijah welcomed you a little bit earlier. I just want to let you know you encourage our hearts and here's why. We love the fact that you're worshiping Jesus or interested in discovering more about him. And we're very... very excited that you would choose to honor us by worshiping with us. You encourage our hearts, and we hope by the end of the morning we will have encouraged yours, that this would be a journey we take together rather than we do something for you and you just receive it. We, we want to share with each other and grow, and so we're grateful. I also want to tell you that you're joining a church that is finishing up a over 30-month series. Uh, we started back in November of 2016 uh, to go through the life of Jesus, taking the four Gospels, putting them together chronologically, and preaching through those texts and experiencing this Uh, and who Jesus was, and all the complexity of the world he lived in, how he revealed the Father to us. And uh, we're in the final four sermons of this series. And we've been in the meat of the gospel uh, since January, when we went into the last week of Jesus' life, where he began to reveal more and more, and then did everything he said he would do. And that's where we're at today. Now, what we're actually going to do is we're going to celebrate Easter in August, which is weird because I know I didn't tell you to wear pastels and there's no jelly beans and uh, you don't have a big ham lunch coming up, I don't think. Uh, so it's going to be a little bit different, but I want to tell you why we're, to study, why we're going to celebrate it and how we're going to do it a little bit differently. You see, when I grew up in the church, when Easter Sunday was all the time that mom made me dress up in a way I didn't want to, and, and we had a big family dinner afterwards and it was a special day and it had a good vibe to it. But we'd go into church and the preacher would say, he has risen, and we'll see if any of you have been trained, he has risen. Go figure that. Now, the rest of you are going, weird people. Yes, we were. (laughs) See, what you would say is, he has risen, and the church would respond, he has risen indeed, but nobody talks like that anymore. I don't know anybody, seriously, who uses the word indeed without being snarky, (laughs) all right? So let me tell you what we're going to do today. I'm not going to ask for this uh, give and take with the audience, but I'm going to tell you that what we're actually doing when we say he has risen is the church would yell out fact. That's what we're doing with that. Jesus has risen from the dead, and the church says, yes, he has. But this story that we're going to look at today can not only be misunderstood, it can be misapplied. I don't mean because we're stupid. I mean because we're not thoughtful. And what I want us to understand is when we say Jesus has risen, that's a good thing for him, but what about you and me? About two or three years ago, a buddy of mine got a hole in one. It was a 186 yard par three, pretty good distance. He got the right stick, the right swing path, the ball did the right thing, landed on the green, rolled in the cup. He said it went about 12, 15 feet, rolled right into the cup, big celebration. I wasn't there with him that day, but he called me. And the truth was when he called me and told me what he did and told me all about it, I was pretty excited for him, I was pretty happy for him. The problem is he can't shut up about it. Every time I talk to him, he's like, hey, remember that time I got a hole in one? I'm like, who cares? I could not care about anything less right now than that stupid hole in one you did three years ago. Have you done one since? So it gets kind of ugly, right? Here's why. Because I'm selfish. And I love the fact that my buddy had a good experience, but every time he brings it up, it's not a shared experience. It's not something that I look at and go, yay, move on. Are you going to do anything else with your life? But yesterday... I was on my computer and I, I, I'm anal with certain things and I have a folder I keep on my laptop and that is pictures that I take off my phone or people send me that I think are funny and I will put them in this file and this is a folder that's called pictures to be filed and then I put a name on them like when I got them so you know, we don't ever have to wonder when we're old and senile how old was Braden when that picture was taken. So I'll put the year and we have all this stuff. That's all the background. I found a picture from last summer of a restaurant we went to. Now, most of you know if you attend this church, I'm a foodie and I am unembarrassed. I love food. I thank God for food. It's one of his greatest gifts. Can I have an amen, church? Okay. So I keep pictures of food. I don't post them on Instagram or social media. I just keep them for my own viewing pleasure. (laughs) I'm so sad. And I took a picture of this chicken and biscuits we had in Holland, Michigan. And it was beautiful. And I sent it to my friend last year who had it when I did. And I sent him this picture of this plate of food, and next to it, I wrote the words, never forget. And my friend texted me yesterday, preach. (laughs) These are the friends I have in life. This is the connection. Now, if I would ever say to him, hey, dude, remember that meal we had in Holland? He would go, yes, we could celebrate it for the rest of our lives because it impacted both of us. It was a shared experience. Here's the problem. When churches say he has risen, too many people in the church don't share it. It's not a shared experience. It's, yay for Jesus, good for him. But you don't understand. Jesus didn't raise from the dead so that we could celebrate what he did. He raised from the dead so we could celebrate what he did to us. Are you with me, church? This is not just talking about something that happened 1,000 a, a years ago or 400 or 900 years ago. This is not what we're talking about. We're talking about if Jesus is raised from the dead and you're not, we've missed the point of Easter. We've missed the joy of the resurrection. You and I ought to be able to say he has risen and you and I can respond, fact, I have too because of what Jesus does in the resurrection. So let me explain. If I ever say to you, remember that time Jesus raised you from the dead? I hope you can look at me and go, dude, I remember it every day because it changed everything. You see, the cross was the victory and the resurrection is the evidence The cross is the victory and the the resurrection is the evidence for our faith. I want to share with you three things, but this is going to be an Oprah sermon. Are you ready? Some of you are excited. All the dudes are like, are you kidding? Here's what I mean by an Oprah system. You get something and you get something and you get something. Everybody gets something, all right? So here's what I'm going to tell you. For you thinkers in the room, you logicians, you want evidence, you want to reason with the evidence, you want to wrestle with the evidence, you want to be proved by the evidence, I got something for you. For you feelers... And you want the experience and the emotion and you want to you be moved like a good piece of music or a, a good movie, I got something for you. And at the end of it, I got something for every single person, even the person kicking tires this morning wondering, I'm not sure about this place. Trust me, what I want to share with you, you could not have picked a better Sunday to come to church than the one that makes the church worthwhile. And so I got something for everybody, I think. And well, let me start over. I don't have anything for anybody. The word of God's got a big message for all of us. Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunshine, and I'll pause there. After the sun was risen, here's what would happen. Jesus was, was murdered at the end of the week. And there was the Sabbath that began that evening at six o'clock or sundown. And the Jewish people would honor the Sabbath by remaining at, with their family and doing no work and honoring God by resting as he rested on the seventh day. And they would rest on this day. And they would go from sundown to sundown. And then Saturday night, they were free to go about the activities they needed to do, taking care of the livestock, whatever they needed to do. They would do it this way. Well, these women had followed Nicodemus and Joseph when they took the body to the tomb. And they knew where they laid him. And they saw the stone rolled in front of the tomb. And they decided they would go back on sunrise of Sunday morning. And the reason they would do this is because of the Sabbath and the double holiness of the sabbath and the passover they would not go out after dark as women in that culture to a grave because a the stone was rolled in front of it they were going to need help and then they get up that sunday morning they gather together the materials to go bury finish burying the body of jesus and they're going to the tomb now i want to pause here for a second because you and i know the end of the story we can think that they're whistling and skipping and holding hands and they're happy i want to pause and tell you they don't know the end of the story yet jesus had told them but they didn't get it And what you need to understand is they went, and the only thing that I can equate it to, and I hope this isn't too much, but I'm going to try. For those of you under 25, you're going to have to trust me. But for those of us older, do you remember 9-11, 2001? I'm betting anybody that was alive and paying attention can tell me who told them it happened. I bet most of us in this room, you're all nodding your heads. I bet you can tell me where you were. You know exactly where you were and you found out and discovered. I, was, I had taught a class at the Bible College in Michigan and I was finishing my class and having a great conversation with a student when a professor came in and grabbed me by the arm and said, you need to come with me. And I was like, dude, hang on a second. I'm finishing the conversation. He looked at me with that look, like and I, the moment it happened, I thought one, something had happened to my mom and dad. It was that serious of a look. And he's like, you need to come with me. And we walked into the student commons and on the big screen television in the commons was the replay of the events. And we were all just sitting there trying to figure out, what is this? What does this mean? Do you remember that moment? I remember canceling classes. I I was the academic dean. I canceled classes for the entire school and we just prayed. And I got in my car and drove 70 miles home, and I got to Mount Pleasant, Michigan, where we lived, and I went into the elementary school where uh, Alex was at, and I said, I'm taking my son home, and the secretary looked at me kind of nervously, and she said, you can't, you're not signed out as his guardian. You see, because I worked in Michigan, my wife was local, she put her name down only, and it was a control thing anyway, but she put her name down only, and I had this little tiny secretary looking at me like I could not have my son, and I was very, very kind, but I was very direct. My son is getting in my car and going home with me, and only God's going to stop me, and she's like okay, and so I took my son home, and we went down in our family room, and we watched scene after scene, and the news reports breaking, and it got to a point that about 7 o'clock that night, little tiny Alex was six years old, and he went and put his body over the television, and he turned around and looked back at us, and he said, can we watch something else? He saw the dress, He saw his mom and dad in a condition he hadn't seen us before, because we had never been in that condition before. We grew up in a safe place, and now it's not safe. Do you remember waking up Wednesday morning 912, 2001. Do you remember the questions that went through your head? Like, what is the world going to be like now? Do you remember when you used to be able to walk into an airport without fear? Do you remember those moments? That's what they were feeling 10 times. Their world was shattered. These weren't women skipping to the tomb, expecting a miracle. They were going to prepare a dead man for the rest of eternity. And that's the feeling. They were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? And when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus and Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. Fact. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. All four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all record that these women went to the tomb and found it empty. They tell that the angel spoke to them. They tell the reaction of what took place in this moment. He has risen just as he told you. The angel was saying, don't be alarmed. He told you this would happen. He's who he said he was. He told you what would happen. He told you how it would happen. And then he did everything the way it was supposed to happen. For those of us that are thinkers in the room, I want to share with you this. The resurrection reveals a word of challenge for the mind. Now, please, for those of you sitting in the room, I'm not saying if you're a thinker, you're better than a feeler. I'm just saying that God makes us all a combination of both. We lean toward one prominently. For those of you that sit here and you struggle with the thing about Christianity and everything because you just want more concrete evidence, I'm going to tell you, we are unashamed. We have what you need. I can't answer every question you have, but the questions I can answer will prove to you Jesus is who he said he was. And I want you to feel free to wrestle with that. Verse 6 again. Don't be alarmed, the angel said. You're looking for Jesus in Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. There had been messianic posers, I like to call them, fake people that said they were the Messiah, and they would show up and say they were the Messiah, and they would be executed for defying the religious principles, and then their whole movement of people would dissipate into the crowd. There was nothing to be found after that. They weren't who they said they were, they weren't the person they were supposed to be, and then it was over, except for Jesus. You see, Jesus' crowd thought, oh, no, we believed in a lie. We believed in something that was taken from us. They went to the tomb thinking, how could he die? And then they show up, and the angel says, don't be alarmed. He's not here, just like he said. Death could not contain him. Death could not hold him. He said he would do it. He did it. He made a claim that no one could believe He was really dead and he was really alive. We know he's really dead because the Roman executioner who did this for a living punctured his side with a spear and water and blood came out separate which proved medically that his internal organs had ceased to function. He wasn't faking, he didn't pass out, he didn't faint, he was dead. And then he wasn't. And the realities of this evidence of a dead man becoming alive as he said he would was enough to take one of the Pharisees of that day, a man who I believe heard Jesus preach and teach and went about setting him up to be unlawfully killed. One of those men changed their mind about Jesus based on the resurrection. His name was Saul. We know him as Paul, the author of most of the New Testament. This is what he wrote, his testimony, as to why he was a believer to the Roman churches in a book we call Romans in our Bible. This is what he says. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Notice that Paul says, We were told this would happen. Regarding his son, who, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Paul would say, I'm in. Because of the resurrection. And this was a man who was out. He didn't believe the teachings. He didn't believe the miracles. But when the resurrection happened, Paul said, that's the evidence I needed. He said he would do it, and he did it. He said why he would come. He demonstrated who he was, and then he did what he said he would do. And it challenges us. Some people say, well, this was made up by his followers because they were embarrassed that they followed a false teacher. Well, let me tell you this. Mark would write this. And when it was sent out to believers and it was communicated to people, his writings, he actually named these women. He named where they were from. They were alive when he wrote this. He's basically saying to us, there are eyewitnesses that will testify that what I'm writing is true. He was unashamed of the evidence. He said, in fact, go ask somebody else. I'm only telling you what they told me. Others, they want to dismiss it like the people of Jesus, they were ignorant. And they always were looking for miracles, and they would make a miracle out of something that wasn't a miracle. Tell me, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and tell me that the crowd wasn't stunned every time Jesus did a miracle. Stunned. Not just like, yeah, we knew it, but like, holy smoke, he fed 5,000 people with a sack lunch? He raised Lazarus from the dead? They didn't go in expecting. These women did not go to the tomb to have a celebration of the resurrection. They went to the tomb to bury a dead guy. They weren't expecting this. In fact, if they were expecting it, why did the angel say to him, don't be alarmed? You see, there's so much more evidence I wanna offer. I'm not being dismissive, like I've given you two or three little bones, chew on those, that'll be enough. No, I wanna tell you there's more evidence, but time doesn't allow me to walk through all of it. That tells you how much evidence there is. But I would encourage you, if you wanna know more about this, a few years ago in April of 2017, the 23rd message of the 130 some we're gonna preach through this series, was on the evidence of the resurrection from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which Elijah introduced this morning. I would encourage you, go on our webpage, and let's say you can't find it, or you're not really that, you're like, I don't even know where to look. Email me, I'll send you the transcript. Because we have presented multiple times here that there is real evidence out there we are unashamed. And we want you to wrestle with it, because I think when you wrestle with it, you'll know who Jesus is. And when you know who Jesus is, life comes into focus, you see, in verse 7, it says, He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. He's not dead and disappeared. He's dead, he's alive, and his spirit is in all of us, and he's revealing himself to us, and by revealing himself to us, he reveals the Father. You see, they, they weren't making up a myth and a lie, and they, they weren't predisposed toward miracles. And they had the intellectual integrity to look at the evidence and be changed by it. My question today is do we? Do we have the intellectual integrity to look for serious, for our own, in our own study at the evidence of the resurrection and make a conclusion that might alter our worldview? Now, for the feelers in the room, for those of you that liked being moved, and you want that sensation. There's nothing dismissive about that. Life would be horrible without being moved by good music and good food and good friends and conversation. God's given us a gift. Verse seven, or excuse me, the resurrection reveals a word of grace for your hearts. He offers a word of grace. He gives us a moment that we can sit back and feel good about, feel alive, feel refreshed. Verse seven, The angel says, but go tell his disciples and Peter he is going ahead of you into Galilee and there you will see him. It is so significant that we slow down. The gospel of Mark, most scholarship that I read, in fact, I find very little debate on this, it's almost agreed upon, that Mark got his details specifically from Peter, that Peter was the influencer of Mark's writings. And so Peter tells him in this moment that Jesus said these words, tell the disciples and Peter. Now, why does that make a difference? Well, if you've been paying attention to the narrative of what's taken place in the life of Jesus, what did Peter do just a few nights before? He lied three times about even knowing who Jesus was. He used obscene language so that the the Roman executioners wouldn't think he was a friend of Jesus. He did everything that he said he would never do, and Jesus said, yeah, you'll betray me. And Peter's like, I won't, everyone else will, not me. And then he did. He's devastated. Can you imagine when he hears the words that Jesus says, go tell my disciples that Peter would have thought, yeah, I used to be one of those. And then I threw it all away. I panicked, I broke, I failed. But Jesus isn't like that. Jesus is like, no, go tell the disciples and make sure you tell Peter. When our boys were little, I know I'm sharing anecdotes from my home, I hope it's okay. But when my boys were little, and we never used this in a punitive way, we only used it in an encouraging way, we used to have this ridiculous, improper grammatical statement that we'd say to our boys. I would come in the house, and you know how sometimes you're just looking across the room and your love for your kids just hits you, and you just want to, they're cute, and they're adorable, and you just want to, come here. Well, I always look at my boys and go, hey, come see me. And they'd be playing on the ground, and I'd say, Alex, come see me. And this little kid would paddle across the floor and jump up on the chair with me. And he'd be like, what? Nothing. Just wanted you to come see me. And we'd do that with Braden. And when they were, I never did like, "Come see me and you're going to get punched." No, no, it wasn't that way. "Come see me" was always gentle and good, and I just want to love you and I just want to be with you, and I just want you near me. And I, I want you to hear with all your heart that what Jesus is doing here, because he does things differently than you and I do. He's not calling Peter so he can scold Peter. He's saying to Peter, "Come see me." He invites him specifically by name. It's grace. You see, in our world today, if you've done something wrong and you want someone to forgive you, you have to meet their expectations. With Jesus, there are no expectations. Jesus forgives us so we can repent. The world wants us to repent, and then they may forgive us. But Jesus does it the opposite. He forgives us so we can repent. It's by his kindness that we're led to repentance, Paul writes. Jesus just does it different. And for those of us that want to feel something, I want you to feel that today. The resurrection was Jesus coming out of the tomb going, yes, you put me there. I'm back. Come see me. Come to me. I have what you always needed. You see, Peter, Jesus knew this about Peter. Because Peter had sinned the most public and the most graphic and the deepest, he would understand grace at the deepest. And then he would be able to offer grace because he experienced it. And on the day the church began and the Holy Spirit descended on a group of believers in Jerusalem, who was the person who stood up and talked about the work of grace that Jesus did? Peter. And when Peter preached the grace of Jesus, he said to the audience, and your sin and your rebellion crucified him. And the crowd cried out to Peter, what must we do to be saved? And I think it's interesting. Peter said, do what I did. Repent and receive the gift of Jesus. Peter got it, and I hope you do too. And I hope it moves you. I'm not saying it doesn't move you. I hope instead of saying, yay, Jesus, you stopped today, and selfishly, it's okay, in your worship, say, <laughs> yay, me. By the resurrection, there's evidence to believe, and there's grace to hold. See, because on Sunday morning, when Jesus walked out of the tomb, he didn't trick death, he crushed it. He crushed it. He destroyed it. If a criminal goes into jail or into prison and they're sentenced by a judge and they go into prison, I think it's kind of funny the answer to this question. When they walk out of prison, what are they? Now, before you answer, and you won't anyway, but before you might answer, there's only two answers to my question. What happens when they go out and they come out? Well, they come out what? A felon or free? They come out free, church. We can put labels on them and I understand all the stipulations of that. No, but when they have served their sentence, they come out when Jesus walked out of the tomb, he showed us that he did not trick death, he destroyed it. Death could not hold him. When death was arrested, our lives began. See, the reason we sang that song is that's the gospel hope. And the hope is in the resurrection. So it has a challenge for the mind and it has a challenge for the heart. Thirdly and lastly, the resurrection reveals a word of purpose for our lives. This is where every single one of us, if you want it, can have a gift from Jesus it's a reason to be. See there's two things that the angel said to the women at the tomb. First is don't be alarmed. See if you understand the resurrection it will free you. And it will free you from some amazing things. It will free you it will free you rather from fearing death. It will free you from believing that suffering is the end of your life that suffering is ruining everything. Yes, we are gonna suffer for the case of the gospel just like Jesus did. We're told that if you believe in me, you'll suffer for my kingdom. We know that that's true. And we're gonna go through moments that are hard. And how do we get through those moments that are hard? As a pastor, I stand on this stage most every Sunday in each year for the last 10 years. And every time I walk in here, I look out and I see the story of somebody whose life was altered for the bad from the previous Sunday. I know people that have worshiped in this room this week, who a week ago had no idea that they would be involved in a funeral service this week. I I know that people that are wearing the fact that they lost their jobs, that people have lost children's hearts to other things, that addiction has broken relationships and homes. I know every time I stand on this stage, some people walk in, it's like, it was a great week, God bless you. But may God bless those who it wasn't a great week. And how do we as Christians have a message for those people whose lives are broken and altered and damaged and scared and frightened and wonder if this is it, what do we have? And here's the answer, it's the resurrection. How is it the resurrection? It's this way. If you think you're only going to get one lap in life, then suffering and pain and brokenness and divorce and all of that will ruin everything. And you're going to look at God and raise your fist and go, I got ripped off in my one journey in this world, but I'm telling you this. The resurrection tells us this isn't our only journey. That Jesus is not going to fix everything on this side. He will fix everything on His return. And we will enter back into the garden, and every tear will be wiped, and everything will be made right. I read a story of a 19 or 18 year old girl who was paralyzed in an accident from the neck down. And the church that she attended was a liturgical church, and the priest would come on stage and every week or lead the congregation in a moment of worship. And that moment of worship each and every week was to have everybody kneel. Everybody would get out of their chairs and they would kneel for a time of prayer. And this girl said, it broke her heart and she wept almost every Sunday that she gathered because she couldn't get out of her chair. She couldn't kneel. And it it made her hurt. And then one Sunday, the priest said, would everybody kneel? And she started to cry and she, she basically preached the gospel to herself. She said, I won't do this, I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna pray whatever the prayer is. I'm gonna join my church family in prayer. And the prayer that morning was on the hope of the resurrection. And I'd like to quote what she wrote. I suddenly realize that when I get to the wedding feast of my king, the first thing I'm able to do on my resurrected legs is to drop down on grateful, glorified knees and kneel before the feet of Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, but she's better than that. She says, and then I'm going to get up on my feet and I'm going to dance. And I read that, and I'm thinking, that's a person who's not just celebrating Jesus is resurrected. That's a person who's living in the hope of the resurrection. Think what the resurrection means to people who are physically disabled, or mentally disabled, or have had an accident where they've had abilities they once had taken from them. Think about the resurrection if it's just yay Jesus instead of yay us. Think about the power and hope it has for a person who's never been able to walk or run or jump or dance to realize in the heavenlies, when Jesus comes back, we are all gonna dance. I know some of you say, well, I won't dance. You'll dance. (laughs) You better get used to it now. God doesn't care about decorum. When we get together, there's gonna be an explosion of unseemly worship. It's gonna be awesome. But what does the resurrection say to the person who's emotionally handicapped? Or wishes they could erase 30 seconds of their life where they said the wrong thing and it got heard? Or they made the wrong choice and they can't fix it? It's the same hope, church. Jesus is gonna make everything right. He's going to fix all of our broken wrongs. He's gonna do it because he loves us. Come see him. Come to him and receive the resurrection now. So the angel said to him, don't be alarmed. And the second thing it said is go and tell, go and tell. Now this ends really awkwardly. I'm so out of time, but let's go. I believe that Mark chapter 16 ends in verse 8. Let me explain it. That's a little bit complicated, but we need to. Some of you are looking at your Bible and going, no, dummy, it says 9 through 16 is right here in the verses. Most scholarship in the original transcripts that we call our Bible, in the original letters, there is no verses 9 through 16. They were added later, so they have copies that have it and copies that don't, but the best copies we have do not include verses 9 through 16. So I don't tend to preach it or, or use it because I don't believe it was intended by Mark if it was even written by Mark. Having said that, this book ends awkwardly in verse 8. Here's what it says. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. The angel's like, don't be alarmed! What did they do? They were alarmed. And they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And that's how Mark ends it. Fear of who Jesus is will keep us silent. Fear of what Jesus has done will keep us silent. Fear in not knowing what to do with all of this. And so Mark records... They didn't say anything, and they fled. Now, Matthew, Luke, and John tell us that these women went back to the disciples, and they told them the tomb was empty. And then John tells this funny story, and I don't have a whole lot of time for it, but John says he and Peter took off and ran toward the tomb to find out if it's true. And John says, I beat him there, but Peter was the one who went in and looked. John's like, I beat him there. And Peter runs in and Peter goes, It's empty. And they went back and told the disciples. And disciples gathered and started praying. And then Jesus appeared in the upper room to them. And he's like, I'm here. And he walked through the wall. And it was really weird. He's like, I told you, come see me. So I came to see you. You see, the truth of the matter is the resurrection is not just a historic moment that we're grateful for, like the founding of America. No, it's a story that changes lives every day if it's believed. So don't be afraid. Verse 7, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. See, Jesus went back to where he first met them. He said, I'm going there. Come see me. Come join me. You can experience the resurrection in your own life by following Jesus. Your resurrection, too. It will help you stand up to suffering and fear and anger. It will help regenerate your soul and bring you life. There's so much richness if we don't turn this into a holiday. And instead, we celebrate it each and every moment. You see, the resurrection is not just a historical fact about Jesus. It changes the way we see him. It changes the way we see our own failure and our own hearts. And it changes the way we live for him. Because we're no longer afraid of what the world will threaten us with or offer us. We stand up to it knowing that the only thing we need in life is the power of the resurrected Jesus to bring us from death to life. See, the question this morning for the believer and the unbeliever in the room... And I'm gonna tell you, around this room are four tables with lamps lit. And there are people that have already gone to these tables to meet you there, to pray with you, to encourage you, to answer the questions you might have. And they're there because we want you to understand that we're not asking you to do this on your own. We do this in community as a family. And there'll be people that'll be more than happy to pray with you and walk with you. But the question to the believer and the unbeliever in the room this morning is not, uh, do you believe in the facts of the resurrection? The facts are the facts, it's true. Has the resurrection happened for you? It's great that Jesus was raised from the dead, but have you been? How do you do that? You follow the King wherever He leads you. You trust the King. You don't let the world threaten you. You live by the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and you find life. Question this morning in all of our hearts is Is it yea Jesus? Or is it yea me? Because of the resurrection. Has he raised you from life to death? If you want to know more about that, please come see us. It's a lifelong journey to discover the answer, but it is so worth following Christ. Let's stand together. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.